Daniel chapter 8, and we'll read the whole chapter together. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it, and none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. It came towards the two-horned ram I'd seen standing beside the canal and charged at it in great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and towards the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord, and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. He said to me, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man, and I heard a man's voice from the Ulai calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath, because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes is the first king. The four horns that replaced the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation, but will not have the same power. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. 
He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given you is true, but seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. Well, we are continuing our series in the book of Daniel this week, and we are in the second uh, part, second sermon in the second part of the book, which is this apocalyptic section of Daniel that looks forward to future events, speaks truth about things that are coming into the future. And this is an amazing chapter. It's a really amazing chapter because it contains detailed predictions about events that would happen about 400 years after Daniel wrote it down. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. Now, um, the content of this vision is hard for God's people. And I think that was what was so deeply troubling Daniel, as he saw what it meant for the people of God as they looked forward, because it predicts future suffering. And we're going to come in the latter part of the message to think about what that means for the people of God and what it means for us today. But before we do that, I really don't want us to miss just how significant it is that God is revealing these future events to Daniel. You know, none of us can predict the future accurately, can we? I uh, remember on the night of the US presidential election in 2016, Naomi and I were discussing what might be the outcome of election, and we said, you know, Donald Trump will never win. He's not going to win. Woke up the next morning, he'd won. Just after that, we were discussing the the Brexit referendum, and I thought, oh, no, it's going to be staying in. But it wasn't what happened. The vote went the other way. None of us can predict the future accurately. We can't predict it short-term, just one evening to the following morning. And, well, long-term, none of us can really predict it well. If we could, we would all be very much better prepared and very much more wealthy uh, than we are. But in our passage tonight, we read God revealing three major future events before they happen. Two of those events are the arrivals of two great world empires, the Medo-Persian Empire and the Greek Empire. And then one, and that's the main chunk of the passage, is a detailed prediction about a time of intense suffering for the people of God that happened 400 years after Daniel wrote it down at the hand of a ruler called Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Now, that tells us a lot about the power of God, doesn't it? It tells us a huge amount. Because if the book of Daniel is written when we believe the book of Daniel was written, during that exile period of 600 to 530 B.C., then it's an amazing book that we're looking at this evening. It's an amazing book. But, of course, some people think that the book of Daniel wasn't written then. They think it was written much later, and so very conveniently contain the record of historical events that had, in fact, already happened. 
But we have very good reasons to think that Daniel was indeed written by Daniel during the exile. And the most significant reason is that our Lord Jesus Christ tells us Daniel wrote this book. And so in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 15, you're going to have to help me, guys. It's not working. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 15, we read Jesus speaking about the things in the book of Daniel, and then he says that they were spoken through the prophet Daniel. So Jesus believed that Daniel wrote the book of the prophecy of Daniel. And that should be enough in itself for us to confirm this book was written by Daniel during the Babylonian exile. But if we wanted a further external confirmation, we could go to the Jewish historian Josephus, who was writing in the first century, and he tells us that when Alexander the Great came to Jerusalem in around 330 BC, we read this. That the book, uh, no, there's one back there, guys. That the book of Daniel was shown to him in which he declared that one of the Greeks would destroy the empire of the Persians. So what's going on there? Well, well, Josephus is telling us that when Alexander the Great comes in about 330 BC to Jerusalem, they open up the book of Daniel and they say, you're written about in this very book. So this book was known and accepted as scripture, and the events recorded in this book were there when Alexander came to Jerusalem. So we can be confident that this book was written as claimed by Daniel during exile in 600 to 530 BC. And so it should amaze us that Daniel's vision has all these detailed predictions. Just think what that teaches about the Bible. The Bible is not another ancient text. This book is the living word of God. It is spoken to us by the one true God. And when God speaks in it about the future, he speaks with truth. And so, when people mock the Bible, perhaps in what it says about eternity, about the realities of heaven and hell, and say, well, that's made up to control people. Well, what can we say as we look at this passage? We can say that if God can speak with accuracy about world kingdoms hundreds of years before they turn up and arise and speak with detail about the actions of kings hundreds of years into the future, then surely God also can speak with accuracy about eternity and judgments. This is no ordinary book. We should take it very, very seriously. We should treasure its message. We should believe it is true and we should build our lives upon it. Well, what we're going to do uh, in our time together, we are going to look at these predictions and we're going to see what Daniel saw and what that meant and we'll work through the passage and see what those things are. And then as we close, we're going to draw three lessons for us from this passage. So that's the the structure. We're going to, um, I was talking to the family uh, about the message today and they warned me, they always said, Matthew, Dad, make sure you don't give a lecture. Uh, make sure that it's a sermon tonight. So I, I trust that with God's help it will be a sermon. But, but I, it is exciting, isn't it, to link historical events to Scripture and see the way God fulfills these things. So what did Daniel see and what did it mean? Well, Daniel's vision comes, as we read in verse 1, in the third year of King Belshazzar. And in this vision, he's standing in the citadel of Susa, which is around 220 miles east of Babylon. And in the vision, Daniel sees, first of all, 
in verses 3 and 4, a ram. He sees a ram, and we read uh, about this ram with two uneven horns. It charges around the world with this great power that, that no one can resist. And as we jump down to the interpretation there in verse 20, we are told that the ram is the king's of Media and Persia, the great empire that came to overthrow the Babylonians and then dominate the ancient Near East. But if you just jump back to verses 3 and 4, notice that in the detail there, it doesn't just predict the appearance of the kingdom. It also predicts how the kingdom develops. And we know that the Medo-Persian empire began in the east close to where Daniel was standing in Babylon, then spread, and the ram does this, he charges towards the west. And that's what the kingdom did, because it defeated Babylon. And then it went south, because it went down to Judah. And then it went to Egypt, which is also geographically south. And then it went north, up into Macedonia and Greece. It's astonishing, isn't it? Not just the kingdom, but the details of how it developed. But then also, we see that Daniel sees a goat, And that's there in verses 5 to 8. He sees this goat coming from the west, and it's traveling with with such speed that it doesn't even touch the ground. It's flying in that sense. And the the goat crashes into the ram, knocking it down and and overcoming it. And like the ram, the, the goat has great power, appears unstoppable, but at the height of its power, his horn, which is a symbol of his strength, is broken off. And four horns come to replace it. And as we jump across to the interpretation of the vision in verses 21 and 22, we're told that the ram is Greece and that the large horn is the first king of Greece. And Alexander the Great was the first king of Greece who had significant military conquests. And the prophecy here matches the description we know of Alexander's life from history. Remember the that the, uh, the goat was moving with great speed. And Alexander was known for this sweeping conquest across the, the ancient Near World. He, he defeated the Medo-Persian kingdom, and then he went to have an empire that stretched from Greece down to Egypt and right across to India. Spanned one and a half million square miles. It's a huge empire. Having become king at this verse, at age 20, he did this in just a few years. And then he was cut off in his strength. Remember, the horn was cut off in its strength that he died in his prime at age 32, probably from malaria. But also, notice that in the detail of the vision in verse 8, it speaks of four prominent horns who will grow up after this one horn is broken off, Alexander. And then In verse 22, it speaks of four kingdoms that will emerge from Alexander's kingdom. And ancient history tells us that uh, four major major generals of Alexander's army divided up the kingdom into four smaller kingdoms. Again, astonishing, isn't it? Hundreds of years before it happened, God was speaking of these world kingdoms. But of course, they are just preparing the way for the major focus of the vision which is the horn, which is there for us in verses 9 to 12. In 9 to 12, one of the smaller kingdoms of the four that had risen up from Alexander's kingdom 
uh, from one of those smaller four kingdoms, a, another horn arises. And he grows in power. And the account of his actions here in the passage shifts to particularly focus upon a land that is called the beautiful land in verse 9. So we move from the, the, the sort of the wide-angle vision of the ancient Near East right into one land called the Beautiful Land. Now, what land might that be? Well, that's, of course, the land of Israel. And the vision tells us what this uh, king does. He tramples, verse 10, many of God's people. The people of Israel are the starry host that he throws down to the earth. We read in verse 11 that he opposes the Lord, setting himself up as... The, sorry, as great as the commander of the Lord's army. So he's competing with the Lord for the Lord's place. In verse 11, we read also that he stops the daily sacrifices in the temple and devastates the temple. And then in a summary in verse 12, we read that, that truth was thrown to the ground. He prospered and truth was thrown to the ground. The interpretation in verses 23 to 25 reveals his attitudes of heart. In verse 23, we read that he is fierce and devious. In verse 24, we read that he is strengthened with a power that comes from beyond himself. And then in verse 25, we read that he is proud, taking his stand against the Lord, against the prince of princes, who, of course, is the Lord God. So who is this figure? Well, it's almost certain that this is a description of Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who was a king of the Seleucid Empire from around 175 to 163 BC. And as we read ancient history, you find that he was particularly focused upon persecuting the people of God in Israel. He did it in two waves, two conquests. In the, in the first wave, in his first conquest, he came to Israel and he murdered the high priest, he desecrated the temple by sacrificing a pig there, and killed around 40,000 Israelites. A few years later, he returned in 167 BC because he had lost his battles in Egypt. The Romans had stopped him from advancing into Egypt, and he blamed the Israelites for that. And in blaming them, he came to Israel. He thought they had been the reason he had lost because they had not been serving his gods. And so he killed all the Jews who were there assembled in the temple for worship on the Sabbath. He put an end to the temple sacrifices and he placed a statue of Zeus in the temple. Incredible, uh, horrible desecration of the temple of God. And then in the lives of God's people, they were barred legally from practicing circumcision. They were not allowed to practice the food laws, and they could not worship the Lord their God in any way. It's a period of intense persecution and suffering for the people of God. Now, the Jews fought back under a man called Judas Maccabees, and Antiochus Epiphanes' forces were thrown out of Israel in around 163 B.C., and he hears the news in Babylon that this has happened. And he dies there of an unknown illness. And it's recorded he dies in anguish and grief over the defeat in Israel. The visions, descriptions of his attitudes aligns with what we read of what happened in history. He is so proud that on the coins he minted, he described himself as God manifest. 
Astonishing thing, isn't it, to say about yourself. And so, friends, as we look at the account of what happened and as we look at the account of his heart, there is a remarkable accuracy here in what's being predicted. It's astonishing. And God wants Daniel to understand these visions. He wants him to know about things that are coming. In verses 15 and 16, the angel Gabriel is told to explain the meaning of the visions to Daniel. So it matters to Daniel and it matters to his generation. But God also wants coming generations to understand this vision too. Because if we jump down to verse 26, having received the interpretation, Daniel is told to seal up the vision for the future because it's about the future. Because what's been revealed here will be important to the Lord's people when they go through this. Because he is preparing them for the challenges and hardships that will come in around 160 BC. Now friends, on one level as you look at this passage, it's an amazing passage that that speaks to us about the predictive power of God and his word. And it is true that we stand in a different place looking at this passage as the Jews did when they first read it. Because we're looking back at events that have happened. We're not looking in the future for them to come. But being ready for hardship and trouble is an important message for God's people right through history, isn't it? And so in that way, this chapter is always relevant for the Lord's people. Not in the specifics of what is predicted, because those were events that came about uh, in uh, that period of persecution. But in this, the way in which God prepares his people for trouble in general, we have much to learn from this passage. So we're going to now turn to three important lessons to us from this chapter. And the first is this, that God's people will know trouble because of who they are. God's people will know trouble because of who they are. As we read the description of Antiochus Epiphanes, we see that fundamentally the reason he was doing what he was doing against the Lord's people was because he was opposed to and against the Lord himself. So his opposition to God is expressed in how he treats the Lord's people. We see that in verse 11, because he tries to be great. He tries to be as great as the commander of the armies of the Lord. That's God himself. And notice how it's described in verse 11 uh, about what he does with the sacrifices. He took away the sacrifice from the Lord. He's taking it from God. And then again, also in verse 11, and his sanctuary, that is God's sanctuary, was thrown down. So being shown that this opposition against God's people, this persecution of God's people, is fundamentally an attack against the Lord. And that's reinforced in what we see in verse 25, where he takes his stance against the prince of princes. That is the Lord God himself. So what we're seeing here is that his opposition towards God's people is because he is opposed to the Lord himself. In verse 24, we're reminded that he is ultimately strengthened and empowered by a power that comes outside of himself. What is that power? Well, that's the power of Satan. That's the power of Satan. And so this man, this king, 
is one of many anti-Christ figures who come through the ages of human history who are empowered by God's enemy, Satan, and so they take enemy against the Lord himself. This is Psalm 2 being worked out in history because this is kings of the earth rising up and banding against the Lord and against his anointed. And it is for that reason that God's people are targeted. And that means that opposition and persecution will always be a reality for the Lord's people. Because that's the nature of the battle in which we find ourselves. Satan is always trying to tear down the Lord. He is always trying to tear down his work. And so, he is always targeting the Lord's people. And if you think about the whole scope of church history, isn't that true? That God's people through history have always known trouble. For most of the time, Christians have faced a difficult existence. For most of the time, Christians have known what it has been to be targeted just because you're a believer. And our recent experience here in the UK where we have been in the kindness of God, relatively sheltered, I put it to you that has been an exception rather than the normal experience of the people of God. Now that's the kindness of God and we thank God for that. But here's the danger of that. When you live through a time like that, the danger is you come to think that it's always going to be like that going forward. And we shouldn't. Because God's word prepares us for something different. God spoke to his people to prepare them for persecution. They did not know when it was going to come. They just knew what it was going to look like. And so they needed to be ready. And if that persecution was an outworking of this general principle of God's people being under pressure, in a similar way as the Lord's people, we should always be readying ourselves for trouble. Because Satan is always using evil rulers to target the Lord's people. I was challenged by something that uh, Naomi read this week that she mentioned to me. She was reading something and someone said this, there may be a time in the future when we can't have a Bible ourselves. If that was the case, today are we focusing on reading God's word such that God's word fills our hearts such that if God's word were taken from us, we would still have it deep down in our hearts. That's happened to Christians in the past, hasn't it? It could happen to us as believers into the future. If in the kindness of God it doesn't happen in our lifetimes, would it be a loss that we've read the Bible more and we've hidden it in our hearts? It wouldn't, friends, would it? It might be that a time will come in the future when the opportunities we have right now to share the gospel as freely as we do, they may not be there. There might be a time when when speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has come to do is classified as hate speech. That's going to affect us if that comes, friends. We should be making the most of the opportunities to share the gospel now. That has happened to Christians in the past. It may happen to us as believers in the future. 
if in the kindness of God it doesn't, what have we lost if we've been more bold in making Christ known? We need to be ready. God's word says prepare, make the most of the time now. Because the general experience of the people of God will be persecution and trouble. Because that is what the devil is always doing. But we need to see something else here. We need to see that we are troubled as God's people because that is, that is a, an opposition that comes against the Lord and so we feel it. But then secondly, we need to see, and this is where there is great comfort, that God's sovereignty takes away our fears. Put yourself in Daniel's shoes and in his position because he is going to live through a regime change, isn't he, in his lifetime. In Daniel's lifetime, he is going to see the Babylonian kingdom go and the Medo-Persian kingdom rise up. Think what that's like to live through a regime change. I have no idea what that must be like, but it must have been incredibly unsettling. It would be understandable that he would be fearful and uncertain about the future. But what is God doing from here? Well, Having been prepared through this vision, what does he know? He knows God is in control. He knows the Lord holds a future. And then think of what it was like for the people of God to go through that, that horrible, wicked treatment from Artiochus Epiphanes. And they must have been so fearful in the midst of that. But if they knew this chapter, what did they know? They knew that God was in control. God, it didn't surprise the Lord. He saw it hundreds of years before it came. And so the promise there at the end of verse 25 would have been incredibly precious that this evil ruler would be destroyed, but not by human power. Now, Daniel's used that phrase before, hasn't he, earlier in the book? When he used that phrase, who was he speaking of? He was speaking of God's power. And there is only one power that's not human power, and it's the Lord's. The clear predictions of this chapter give us certainty that God is in control. Because the only really scary place is a chaotic world without the Lord God. And that's not the world we live in. Praise God that's not the world we live in. We might be beyond the specific trials of this chapter, but we are not beyond the future trouble for the Lord's people. And so just like Daniel and just like the Israelites who went through this persecution needed to know that God was in control, we need that truth to be deep down in our hearts. Alistair Begg tells a story of a day when the U.S. Supreme Court acted to redefine marriage such it was no longer between a man and a woman. And when that happened... The U.S. and, of course, the U.K. authorities were taking for themselves a power that belongs to God alone, to define marriage. He wrote these words in his journal that evening. This is the saddest day of my life in America. And then he added, but I know that God is still in charge, so we plan accordingly. That's true, friends, isn't it? Whatever may come, God is still in charge. And so we plan accordingly. We need to recover that faith-filled, faith-fueled courage in a sovereign God. Friends, I wonder, are you praying for that? Are you praying for that kind of courage, faith-fueled courage 
in a sovereign God. I wonder, are you seeking to spur one another on to have that kind of courage too? So that we might live each day here and now with courage in a great God who is sovereign over all. But then thirdly and finally we see that God's kindness limits the duration of our trials. God's sovereignty takes away our fears, but God's kindness limits the duration. Because there in verses 13 and 14, Daniel overhears two angels talking together, and the conversation is about how long the suffering of God's people is going to last. One says to the other, how long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? And the answer given reminds us that the persecution of God's people is always limited by the Lord. In verse 14, the other angel tells her first, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated, and the trouble will come to an end. Now, there's debate as to what time period that is speaking about. If the 2,300 mornings and evenings refer to whole days, that would make it about six years and four months. And if that's a time period in view, then that refers to the entirety of the persecution under Antiochus Epiphanes from around 170 BC to 163 BC. The other possibility is that the passing of 2,300 mornings and evenings actually takes 1,150 days because of the morning and evening each day. And if that's the case, then it's half the time. It's three years and two months. And that would refer to the time when he comes for his second attack against the people of Israel, when he stops the sacrifices of being offered in the temple in 167 BC and the restoration of worship in 163 BC. But whichever it is, and however we count it, whichever period is in view, The point is that the duration is limited by the Lord. God has numbered the timing, the days of their persecution. In his kindness, he is promising it will be limited. And so in in the pain and the suffering of that persecution, the knowledge that God has limited it in his kindness helps them to keep going. Because either the Lord will take us home to glory through persecution or he will bring it to an end. But as God's people, we can always be sure that the persecution of of us will come to an end. And that's what God's word promises again and again to us as the Lord's people. The same message is held out for us in the scriptures in the New Testament. I'm also blown away by the doxology at the end of 1 Peter, where Peter says this, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ... After you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. It's the same thought, isn't it? As we think of trials and persecution. Now, none of us would dare to say that to one another. To say that it's going to come to an end, that it's limited, because none of us have that confidence But only a God, only a God who has numbered the exact duration of any trial for his people can say that. And in the kindness of the Lord, he does. And not only does he say that, 
he says that he is preparing an eternal weight of glory for all those who suffer. He lifts our eyes in the here and now. He says, look to the eternal. And so, friends, knowing that it will end soon, and knowing that we have an eternal glory in Christ ahead of us, we find strength to stand. Strength to stand with his courage that comes by faith. Brothers and sisters, whatever the future may hold, we don't know what is before us. Our confidence can be unshaken because we serve, we worship, we know a God who knows the future. A God who has numbered the days of all the suffering of his people. A God who sovereignly rules and reigns over all things. And a God in whom we can trust today. I hope he is the one in whom you are trusting. And if he is, let us stand like Daniel and his friends, whatever may come, on the foundation of his word.